Amen. It was uh, painted by Leonardo da Vinci in around 1503, and it's been described as the best known, the most visited, the most written about, the most sung about, the most parodied work of art in the world. Of course, this is the Mona Lisa, and uh, it is considered by many to be the world's most recognizable face. But whose face is it? There's a lot of debate, actually. The most, uh, the most common theory is an Italian noblewoman named Lisa del Giocondo, and I probably butchered that, but that's okay. Uh, but this is certainly not the only theory. There, uh, there are some that believe that it was actually da Vinci's mother, Caterina. Others say that it was uh, Princess Isabella of Naples, or a, a Spanish noblewoman named Costanza Diabolos, or an unknown woman, perhaps uh, a consort of da Vinci's. Some have even suggested that, that this is a disguised self-portrait of da Vinci himself. The best and only way to settle the debate would be to hear from Leonardo da Vinci himself, right? So if, if we were able to, to find some written document that we were certain was from da Vinci where he says, this is the Mona Lisa. This is the subject that I painted. I mean, who better than the artist himself to tell us about his artwork? Whenever Christians talk about the Bible we invite debates that are far more fierce than anything related to the Mona Lisa. The Bible is the best-selling, most translated, most read, most loved, and most hated book in the world. I just noticed this morning when I logged into my Bible app, that uh, it had just been downloaded recently over 500 million times just behind Facebook as the most downloaded app of all time. And that's just one Bible app out of many. So this is a book that is, has received incredible exposure, and yet it invites incredible debate. What should we believe about the Bible? Is the Bible simply a helpful book? Or is it unhelpful? Is it dangerous, as some in the new atheist camp would say? Is it the, the Word of God? Does it merely contain the Word of God? Is it reliable historically, scientifically, archaeologically? Is it out of date? Is it true? Where, where do we turn to find answers to the questions that we might have about the Bible? I, I would guarantee you that you just write a name or write a list of your circle of family and friends and coworkers, and each name on that list could be someone that you could ask their opinions about the Bible. 
You could go to your coworkers. You could go to your family members. You could go to your, your children or your parents, your brothers, your sisters. You could go to a pastor or, or a deacon. You could go to a Sunday school teacher. You could go to the internet and find all sorts of theories and ideas about the Bible. You could listen to a politician or an athlete or a celebrity. But who better to tell us what to think about the Bible than Jesus himself. I want you to turn your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. If you've been with us over the past few months, you know we've been walking verse by verse through the gospel of Matthew. This is one of the four accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. This, of course, is written for us uh, by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Matthew, one of the 12 disciples that spent three years following Jesus. And Matthew is, is heavily interested in helping us to see that this Jesus is the King of Kings. He is the Messiah King, and he's coming to, to invite people to submit to the kingly rule of God. And so he begins his ministry by saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in Matthew chapter 5, we notice Jesus climbing up a mountain and, and sitting down and beginning to teach his disciples, those that are followers of Jesus, those that we could say are citizens of the kingdom. And we began a couple of weeks ago by looking at the character of kingdom citizens, that famous passage sometimes called the Beatitudes, where over and over Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on. And last week, we looked at the influence that kingdom citizens have on the world. So if you're a follower of Jesus, this is the type of influence you will have on the world around you. You will be like salt that keeps the world from moral decay, and you will be like light, which shows the world how to get out of moral darkness. But as Jesus is preaching this sermon, perhaps... Jesus is anticipating a question that is arising in the minds of his listeners. This is all interesting stuff, Jesus, but what about the Old Testament? What about the Bible? What do you believe, Jesus, about the Scriptures? Are you an upstart rabbi teacher who's coming with new views and new ideas and we can sort of forget those old antiquated ideas given to us from Moses and the prophets or do you believe that these are worth studying and following? What I want you to see this morning from our passage is that you will never meet someone with a higher view of Scripture than King Jesus. I want you to notice in our text six truths that Jesus believed about the Bible. And what I would argue for us as followers of Jesus, if you're in this room and you're a follower of Jesus, I would plead with you to follow him and believing these same six things. If you're in this room and you're not a Christian or you're on the fence about the Bible. Maybe you like Jesus, but the Bible you don't like so much. 
You cannot faithfully follow Jesus if you will not follow him in believing what he believes about the word of God. And you'll never find someone with a higher view of scripture than King Jesus. Six truths that Jesus believed about the Bible. Number one, Jesus believed the Bible is unique. Look at chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus begins and he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, anytime you're reading your Bible and you come across that phrase, law and prophets, it's a, it's a nickname for the Old Testament. Often the Old Testament would be divided into two categories, law being the, the first five books written by Moses and prophets being everything else. Sometimes you'll see the, the law, the prophets, and the writings. But when you see just law and prophets, this is a, a synonym, a, a nickname for the Old Testament. And by the way, if you're in this room and you're not very familiar with the Bible, that's okay. We're really grateful that you're here. The, the Bible is, is divided into two sections, the Old Testament, which are the books Genesis through Malachi, and the New Testament, which are Matthew through Revelation. The, the Old Testament are the books that are pointing towards the Messiah. Beginning in Matthew, we, we get the story of Jesus, the Messiah, and then after the book of John, we're kind of interpreting and carrying on the work of Jesus and his ministry. Old and New Testament. Now, here's one thing we need to know. Because Jesus, when he says, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, it's interesting that Jesus begins by talking about the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament was not the only religious teaching available to Jews in Jesus' day. Uh, There was also what was called the oral law, a law that was communicated by word of mouth. So the Pharisees and other religious teachers, they counted uh, that there were 248 positive commands in the Old Testament law and 365 negative commands. So all those commands. And the big debate was, how do you interpret and how do you obey the law of Moses? So many Jews believed that that God gave Moses the written law, what we have in the Old Testament scriptures, but there was also something that Moses was supposed to communicate orally, and so it was passed down from generation to generation. It was called the oral law, and it was commonly taught by the Pharisees. This oral law would eventually be recorded around the third century in, in what's called the Mishnah, And these are the the oral teachings of the rabbis and different religious teachers. Now, it's interesting. Follow along with me. Jesus doesn't begin by defending the oral law. He begins by defending the written law. He's interested in what the Bible says, not the oral teachings and traditions of the religious elite in that day. Now, just to show you this, a little bit more in the next section of the sermon. And this is where we will be, Lord willing, for a while. In the next section of the sermon, Jesus tackles head on the oral law and traditions of the Pharisees. 
by saying six times, you've heard this, but I tell you this. So let me show it to you. Grab your Bible and, and scroll down or turn the page if you need to, to chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Go to verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Go to verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Go to verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Go to verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And go to verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. There's a common misunderstanding about what Jesus is doing in those six instances where he says, you've heard this, I tell you this. A lot of people think what Jesus is doing is saying, the Old Testament says this, but I tell you this. But that is not how Jesus references the Old Testament. When Jesus references the Old Testament, he does not say, you have heard that it was said. When he references the Old Testament, he says, it is written. Remember when our brother Sterling preached on the temptation of Jesus? Three times Jesus quotes the Old Testament, and every single time he says, it is written. So here, in what's going to follow in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is tackling head-on not the Old Testament scriptures, but the oral law, which was a misinterpretation of the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus believed that the Bible is unique. Believe the Bible is unique. Because, number two, Jesus believed the Bible is authoritative. Jesus believed the Bible is authoritative. Some Bible teachers today will say things like, Jesus, not the Bible, is our ultimate authority. They'll say, I, I follow Jesus, not the Bible. They'll point out, rightly so, that in Matthew 28, when he gives the Great Commission, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He doesn't say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to, to some books that are written or will be written. And so the argument goes, listen, we're supposed to follow Jesus, not the Bible, because Jesus is our authority. Now, there's some truth in that, and it's often true, isn't it? The, the most deceptive truths have a lot of truth mixed in, don't they? But listen, Jesus has a perfect opportunity right here to come up to the authority of Scripture and say, don't follow this, follow me. But Jesus does nothing to undermine the authority of the Scriptures. Let me show it to you. Look at verse 17 again. Do not think that I have come to abolish 
the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Twice, in that single verse, Jesus uses that word abolish. It, it means to, to make invalid or to annul or to repeal a law. And Jesus twice says very clearly, I did not come to do away with this. It's not why I'm here. Jesus cannot deny the Bible any more than he can deny himself. Because the Bible is the word of God. And John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the what? The word. Christ himself is the word of God. He cannot undermine himself. So anytime someone comes up to you and says, do you follow the Bible or do you follow Jesus? You say, yes. I follow Jesus by following his word. The person that thinks that they can follow Jesus while undermining, undercutting, abolishing the scriptures does not understand Christ. Now, let me, let me show this to you somewhere else in the teaching of Jesus. It'll be on the screen, or you can go to there in your Bible if you'd like. Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 5. Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 5. The Pharisees come up to test Jesus, and they ask... Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, isn't it interesting that Jesus is approached by religious leaders that want him uh, to, to kind of update or redefine his views on marriage. Sound familiar? And Jesus goes where? To the scriptures, to the very beginning, to the book of Genesis. Now, that's incredibly significant. But I want you to notice, I want you to look very carefully at the words in your Bible or on the screen. Who does Jesus believe said those words that he quotes that are underlined on the screen? Who said it? God did. Now, if you read Genesis, this is actually Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. These are, this is not a quote from God speaking. This is an editorial comment by Moses, the human author of Scripture. But Jesus says that God himself, the creator, said this. Jesus believes the Bible is authoritative because the Bible is the word of God. This is God's word. Listen to me clearly, brother, sister, friend. To deny the authority of Scripture is to deny the authority of Jesus. You cannot follow Jesus and forsake his word. Now, let's get practical as we, if, uh, if we can for just a moment. Our greatest temptation, I believe, in this generation, and maybe the ones to follow, will be what we believe about sex, gender, and marriage. If you don't think that, I, I would argue you just, just grab a newspaper, turn on the news, and you'll see it. It's everywhere. This is a constant pressure to update if we can. 
what the Bible teaches clearly about these hot-button issues, sex, gender, and marriage. But listen to me. You have zero authority to change any of this. A couple of months ago, we took um, a little Ezekiel to a, uh, a doctor's appointment in Norfolk to see an adoption specialist, uh, international pediatrician, and he's used to seeing kids come in from other countries and knowing that they often need a lot of medical work that the average American boy or girl may not need at first. And so he uh, submitted, you know, requested all these different tests to be run. And so our first couple of months here with Zeke in the States, we were going to tons of doctor's appointments, getting all sorts of tests done and a lot of medical bills. Now, when the bills started coming in, uh, at least one particular set of bills, and there's a lot of these, um, all of them came back unpaid. All of them, and it, not cheap stuff. And so uh, I began to look at these bills and call the uh, insurance company and try to figure out what's going on. And we found out the problem is that it was billed with the wrong diagnosis code. If you know anything about medical billing, you, you, when a procedure's done, they have to attach a diagnosis code. Here's what was wrong with you, which required this procedure. They have the wrong code, therefore everything is rejected. Now here's what I cannot do. I cannot tell the insurance company, change the code. I, I, mean, I, can, I guess I can tell them that, but it's not going to get me anywhere. I can't change the code. I, I, can, I can ask the insurance company to do it. They're not going to do it. I can call the medical biller at the doctor's office. Guess what? They can't change it either. Only one person can. Who is it? The doctor. Only the doctor. He alone has the authority to change the diagnosis. So too with Scripture. Only God himself has the authority to change anything in here. And Jesus, God in human flesh, steps into Galilee, sits down on a mountain, and says, I'm not changing anything. I'm not here to abolish the law. Jesus believed that the Bible is authoritative. Number three, Jesus believed the Bible is unbreakable. Jesus believed the Bible is unbreakable. Now, now, that particular phrase, unbreakable, comes from John chapter 10, verse 35, when another debate about Jesus' deity with the religious teachers, he says about Scripture, Scripture cannot be broken. Explicitly, the Bible is unbreakable. He says the same thing here in Matthew, although a bit more indirectly. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Until heaven and earth pass away. When's that? That's the end of the age. When Christ returns, right? We sung earlier, the trump shall resound Right? And the Lord shall descend. That's when heaven and earth pass away. And a new heaven and a new earth is created for God and his people. Then, when that happens, or until that happens, none of my word is going to, what? Pass away. And he says explicitly, not an iota, not a dot. Now, what does that mean? 
An iota is, is the Greek letter I. Its, its Hebrew equivalent is the letter yod, not yoda, yod. It's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. We have a, a picture of this. We can get on the screen for you. It's that little apostrophe-looking thing on the far right. That's a yod. This is the word Yahweh. And if you don't know anything about Hebrew, you actually read it from right to left instead of from left to right. So that little apostrophe thing on the far right, that is a yod, smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Jesus says, not even a letter, not even the littlest letter, is passing away from my word until all of it has been accomplished. But what about the dot? Uh, some translations will say a tittle or a stroke. It's referring to the, the little hook at the end of a letter. You see the little hooks there at the ends of those letters? Sometimes those little strokes, those little hooks are significant to be able to tell the difference between one letter and another. Jesus is saying, I want you to notice how amazing this is. Jesus is saying not even the smallest letter or the smallest stroke of a pen will pass away from my word until all of it has been accomplished. You will never meet someone with a higher view of Scripture than King Jesus. Jesus believed that the Bible is unbreakable. Now, if you know anything about human history, you know there have been countless people that have tried to destroy God's Word. One of those was a French philosopher named Voltaire, he made the bold prediction that within a hundred years of his life, the Bible would be nothing but a museum piece. But within a hundred years after he died, the very printing press upon which Voltaire had printed his literature was being used to print copies of the Bible. And what happened next is even more ironic. The very house where Voltaire once lived was literally stacked with Bibles prepared by the Geneva Bible Society. A statue in France says, hammer away ye hostile hands, your hammers break, God's anvil stands. The word of God is unbreakable. Can I just challenge you, Christian? The world is going to try to break you. The world is going to try to get you to bend. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before the golden image. They're going to try to get you to bow, to kneel, to change, to get in line, to go along with what the culture says is true. They will try to break you, but God's word will not be broken. Will we stand on it? Listen, one of the things I love, I love about Bacosan Baptist Church is that this is a Bible church. This is a Bible church. There is a long, rich, deep legacy of faithfulness to God's word here in this place. That is because of you the people, the members of this church that faithfully read your Bibles and faithfully expect those who stand in pulpits and sit in Sunday school rooms, teach it 
rightly. I'm afraid to say something wrong in this pulpit. And I should be. God's word is unbreakable. Number four, Jesus believed the Bible is necessary. Jesus believed the Bible is necessary. Let's take a quick poll real quick. See how many of you are awake. Uh, Raise your hand if you need eyeglasses or contacts to see clearly. Raise your hand if you need eyeglasses. Wow, that's a lot of you. I'm so sorry. That must be hard. Um, (laughs) John Calvin once said that spiritually speaking, all of us can see something about the existence of God by, by looking at the world he's created, but it's not enough. It's, it's fuzzy and unclear, right? Like it would be for you without your glasses or your contacts, right? Fuzzy, unclear. You can see a little bit, but it's unclear. To see clearly, if you want to see spiritually, if you want to see clearly, Calvin says, not perfectly, but clearly, then you need to, to have what Calvin called the, the spectacles of Scripture, So God's word, imagine it like your glasses or your contacts, you put it in the morning to help you see. God's word helps you to see clearly. This is the doctrine of the necessity of Scripture. The doctrine of the necessity of Scripture says that we cannot know God truly. We cannot know ourselves truly. We cannot know our need for a Savior or the way to be saved apart from the Scriptures. The Bible is necessary to know God and how to be saved. This is why our brother Mike and our other elders often pray for translators when we pray for different countries across the world because the Bible is Necessary, And Jesus believed that the Bible was necessary. Let me show it to you. Look at verse 19. Therefore, Jesus says, because none of it's going to pass away, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So, notice what Jesus is saying. If you want to be great in the kingdom, even the least commands must be known, obeyed, and taught to others. So, in other words, you cannot grow up as a kingdom citizen unless you grow deeper into God's word. Okay? And Jesus is saying, not just the big parts of Scripture, But all of it, even what you might think are the least parts of Scripture. I loved our brother Joel's prayer this morning about ignorance. Isn't it true that so often we are ignorant about what God says we must do, not because he hasn't told us, but because we haven't read it. We haven't studied it. So if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you must devote your life, whatever you have left of it, to to knowing this necessary book, greatness, depth in the word of God. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, sometimes Bible people like PBC, 
Bible people, are, are made to feel guilty. Uh, as if, if we're just a 21st century version of the religious people that Jesus was constantly fighting with. You know, you're just, you're just like the Pharisees. You're a Bible person. You're just like the Pharisees. The problem with the religious people in Jesus' day wasn't that they were too preoccupied with Scripture. The problem was they didn't know their Bibles well enough. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the priests, the teachers of the law, they were not too obsessed with the Scriptures. They were too little involved in the Scriptures. Let me show it to you. If you want to turn there, or you can just listen or jot the verse down. Matthew chapter 12 Verses 3 to 5, this group of Pharisees come up to Jesus, and they're mad at his disciples because they're plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath. They're, they're hungry, they're walking through a field, and they're plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees thought that that constituted work. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. So if you, you know, if you want to put it in our context, maybe, uh, you know, opening up a bag of chips, that's work, right? You can't do that on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees see the disciples harvesting in their minds. And so they come to Jesus and they rebuke him. Why are you letting your disciples do this? Jesus, when he defends his disciples, he uses the scriptures to defend them. Twice he asked them, haven't you read the scriptures? Don't you know the Bible? What I'm doing is fully in agreement with the word of God. Or Matthew 19 Verse 4, we read this passage earlier. The Pharisees come to Jesus, try to trick him about divorce. And what does he say? Haven't you read your Bibles? Can you imagine the look on the Pharisee's face? This would be like going to a, 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 a convention with seminary professors and asking them if they've read their Bibles. You're a scholar. You've devoted your life to this. Have you read your Bible? Jesus says, haven't you read? He defends his views on marriage with the scriptures. Or in Matthew chapter 21, verse 16, you remember Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and people are praising him and the little children are praising him. They're worshiping a man, Jesus Christ. And the Pharisees come to him and they say, Jesus, are you going to allow this? And you know what Jesus says? Haven't you read your Bibles? The word of God prophesied that this would happen. Or in Matthew 22, verses 29 to 31, the Sadducees, a different religious group, they come up to Jesus and they ask him about the resurrection. They're trying to trick him yet again about the resurrection. And Jesus, again, responds to this religious group, and he says, have you not read? So let me say it again. The problem with the religious people of Jesus' day was that they didn't really believe the Bible was necessary. The problem with them was that they relied on the Scriptures too little, not too much. Christian, we ought to be Bible people, unashamedly Bible people people. So let me ask you really practically, are you reading your Bible? If, you're, if you have difficulty reading, wonderfully, by God's mercy and grace, there are incredible apps that will read it to you. Are you getting Bible intake? 
Our brother Joel, again, reminded us just by five minutes a day, we will get 30 hours of Bible intake in the year. Now, I didn't test his math on that, but I'm assuming that's true because Joel's a lot smarter than I am, especially with math. Now, here's the question, Christian. If you're a follower of Jesus, are you spending time in God's Word? Maybe you're listening and you say, I don't even know where to start. Let me suggest to you a place to start, the Gospel of Mark. You'll learn the story of Jesus, and Mark kind of writes at a fast pace, and so it's easy to keep up with Mark. And once you finish Mark, go to the book of Romans. It's, it's big and beautiful and glorious, and it will help you under, to understand the gospel better. And then just pick another book of the Bible that you've not read before and read it or listen to it and, and keep doing that until you've gone through the whole thing and then do it again. And as you read it, strive to obey what you read. Isn't it interesting? Jesus says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you have to do what my word says. Whoever does them and teaches them. If you're in this room and you are spending regular time in your Bible and you know God's word, not perfectly, but truly, you've been following Jesus for a while, you've been reading God's word for a while, praise God. I want to challenge you in something. Because again, look at the text. What verse we were in? Verse 19, I think. Verse 19. Yeah. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But, here's the path to greatness in the kingdom, whoever does them and what? Teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. If you have gotten to a point in your Christian walk where you're regularly in God's word, you're learning God's word, you know it, not perfectly, but well, let me ask you, are you teaching others? Jesus says the path to greatness in the kingdom is not merely you internalizing this and obeying this, but you helping others to do the same. This is lost a leader, right? It's being a disciple-making church. Who are you helping to understand God's word? Parents, are you helping your children? Grandparents, your grandchildren? Older Christians, are you helping younger Christians, older men teaching the younger men, young, older women teaching the younger women? Even if you're in this room and you're a baby Christian, you're, you're new at this, you're still kind of learning the ropes, my guess is you can probably find somebody that knows a little bit less than you, and you can teach them what you're learning. This is what Jesus calls us to do. If you believe that Scripture is necessary, you will devote your life to studying this following this and helping other people follow it too. Number five, Jesus believed the Bible is sufficient. It might seem redundant to you to say that the Bible is necessary and sufficient, but, but it's not. These are two different things. Uh, just because something is necessary doesn't mean it's sufficient. So, for example, a good diet is necessary for a healthy lifestyle. That's true, but a good diet isn't sufficient for a healthy lifestyle. You can have a good diet and be unhealthy in other ways because it's necessary but not sufficient, okay? The Bible is necessary, but it's also sufficient. This is what Mike prayed about earlier. When we, when we say something is necessary, 
we're saying you need this. When we say something is sufficient, we're saying this is all you need. So Kevin DeYoung says this about the sufficiency of Scripture. To affirm the sufficiency of Scripture is not to suggest that the Bible tells us everything we want to know about everything. But it does tell us everything we need to know about what matters most. Do you believe that the Bible tells you everything you need to know to become a Christian? That's the sufficiency of Scripture. The Bible tells you everything you need to know to be a faithful Christian. Do you believe that? Do you believe that if someone has just God's Word, if God's Word, the Holy Spirit within them, that they have all that they need to be a faithful Christian. Not saying other things aren't helpful, but that if they just have that, God's Word and God's Spirit within them, that they have what they need to be a faithful Christian. That's the sufficiency of Scripture. Jesus believed in the sufficiency of Scripture. Look at chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying, really simply, if you want to go to heaven, you need to have a righteousness that's better than Pharisee righteousness. Okay? Now I want you to notice the word for in verse 20. He says, for I tell you. Anytime you see the word for in your Bibles, go back and see what is he talking about? What's the for there for? He's talking about the the needs to obey and teach his word. So for or because God's word is true and because we need it, we can, we will, if we're in, if we have been saved by Christ, we will have the righteousness that we need to enter God's kingdom. So Jesus is saying that you and I will gain the practical righteousness that we need by knowing, obeying, and teaching the Bible. If you want to grow in holiness, other books might be helpful. I can't tell you how many books I've given away since I've been your pastor, a lot of them, and maybe a third of them have been read, and that's good. Books are helpful, but they are not necessary because Scripture is sufficient. The Bible is sufficient. You don't need some other book or some other teacher or some other information to be a faithful Christian. You need God's Word. Now, the Pharisees' righteousness was insufficient because they didn't believe that the Scriptures were sufficient. The Pharisees valued the, the Bible. They valued the Old Testament law. They valued the word of Moses. But in the mind of the Pharisees, it was Scriptures plus tradition. And so often they had the, the Scriptures, the written law, and then they had the oral law, their tradition. And often perhaps even always, when you put something alongside the Scripture as an equal authority to Scripture, Scripture always loses. 
And that's what happened in the worldview of the Pharisees. They had the, the written law of God and their oral traditions. And over and over and over again, Jesus gets on to these guys because their traditions went out. And let me show you one place in Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 3. Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, and they said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. Sounds like they're living in COVID times, right? You didn't wash your hands. The Pharisees are getting all over Jesus. Wait a minute. They didn't wash. This is a ritual ceremonial washing, not for hygiene. But they're getting on to Jesus saying, listen, you didn't keep our tradition. Don't you know we always do this? And Jesus says, I love this comeback. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? In other words, you put something alongside the scriptures as equally valuable, and guess what? You end up breaking this to hold on to this. Whether it's your tradition or your personal convictions or something else, we put something alongside the word of God, and the word of God always loses. The problem with the Pharisees' righteousness is that it was internal, or I'm sorry, it was external and not internal. They only cared about what people saw on the outside. Their righteousness was public and not private. Their righteousness was about obeying tradition, not obeying Scripture. For example, in Luke 17, Luke 18 rather, Jesus tells a parable about a tax collector and a Pharisee. And the Pharisee is praying, and he says, Lord, I thank you that I, I do this and this. And one of the things he mentions is, he says, I fast two times a week. I'm not like this tax collector over here. And the tax collector won't even look up to heaven, and he just beats his chest, and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Isn't it interesting? Fasting two times a week is never required in the Old Testament law, but it was required by the personal convictions and the oral traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees. I'm keeping these traditions. I'm not like that guy. The righteousness that you, if you're a Christian, the righteousness that you have, Christian, is more than just external. It's more than just what people see on Sundays. It's Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays. It's when you're in a crowd and when you're alone. It's internal too. The righteousness that you have is more than just following someone's tradition. It's following what God says in his word. And the righteousness that you have, Christian, brings glory to God, not to you. Jesus believed that the Bible is sufficient. And number six, Jesus believed that the Bible is about him. Now, I want you to look at verse 17, and I'm just going to scratch the surface on this, and I'm looking at our time, and we're going to mess up my entire sermon calendar, and we're going to come back and spend a week talking about this, because it's so important. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. I have not come to abolish the scriptures, but to fulfill them. Now, we're going to talk soon about what it means, what Jesus means when he says he fulfills the word of God. I just, 
I don't have time to do it today without rushing through this faster than I should. But I just want you to just leave with this. Leave with this, Christian. How staggering is it to imagine someone like Jesus coming into Galilee and saying about a, a, a scripture that was written, many of it over a 1,000 or 2,000 years prior, saying that was about me. Can you imagine showing up to the National Archives where the Declaration of Independence is and standing there calling a press conference and inviting anybody to stand there and listen to you and say, hey, this document from 1776, it was testifying about me. How shocking, how audacious. And Jesus does something far more staggering. He says he has come to fulfill the Scriptures. And John chapter 5, verse 39, talking to the Pharisees, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Or there's that famous passage in Luke 24, after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus, Jesus says, or scripture says in Luke 24, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Listen to me, brother, sister, friend. The Bible is about Jesus. Before it's anything else, it's about Christ. When you read the Bible... And you read the story of David and Goliath, don't think, I'm David and I've got these Goliaths, these giants to fight out there. No, you're not David. The Bible is not about you. It's about Jesus. When you read the scriptures and Daniel's there in the lion's den, and you think, dare to be a Daniel, I need to be brave and have courage. And yes, that's true, but that passage is not ultimately about how you need to be brave but about how Jesus has defeated all of your enemies. This book, from beginning to end, is all about Christ. And so we worship Him. And the greatest message, of course, of the Scriptures is the good news that God sent His Son to die on a cross in our place and rise from the dead so that we can have eternal life. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, we would invite you, we would plead with you to believe that good news today. Don't leave here thinking that the way you get right with God is believing the right things about the Bible. The way you get right with God is by trusting that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead. And when you trust that, you follow this Jesus and believe like he believed. That's what we invite you to. And that's what we invite one another to every single time we gather, to keep following, keep trusting this Jesus as revealed in this book. Would you pray with me?